So, um, and um, tonight I wanted to go back to basics and um, remind us of, especially for the um, um, newer uh, Sangha members, uh, the, an overview. One of the things that we talked about in the question and answer period, or maybe I said it in the beginning um, sharing before uh, the meditation this morning, that really the heart of our practice is about cultivating peace. And in fact, the Buddha talked about peace as the highest peace, this capacity that we have to um, realize. And, and I like that word realize because it's so different than get or even find. But to realize, to open to or to awaken to the highest peace. And it's so beautiful just to take that reflection simply as a contemplation of what is it to realize the highest peace. Especially because we've all, all of us here, 29 years of us at least, and 70 plus years, right, for those of us, um, some of us. Um, we already know how unpeaceful life can be. And so really, what was the Buddha talking about when he said that it was possible to realize the highest peace? And when we contemplated then it comes to acknowledging not that we have to change everything in our life so that we can feel peaceful because we've tried that already and that hasn't been possible. And so we see then that at least for the beginning of realizing the highest peace, it has to do with how we relate. And I love that because it immediately gives us agency. There actually isn't ever a time when we don't have agency in our life because in every moment we are in relationship. And so then it is, well, how am I relating? How am I relating if, and we went in that circle where we called energies in right at the beginning of our retreat on Friday night, and many of you mentioned peace. So how do I call peace? And so the Buddha, the Buddha said, well, it's how you relate to what's happening. Um, and then in the question and answer period, 
we explored that a little bit further and said it's not in general, but what life gives us for each of us. Our, we, this body-mind process for each of us has come into life and it's what's been given to us, this personality, this body. And if you believe in karma, the karma, the history of that. And so the very, the, the invitation, the very first invitation is how do I relate to what this life has given to me, not only the personality, body, life, but everything that goes with it. How do I relate to it? How do I relate to it to bring peace? Um, the first retreat I sat with Upandita, who's a Burmese master in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition, he spent the very first night talking about Deva realms. And he said that in his country and in Asia, there's a lot of um, effort to get to the Deva realms. And in Buddhism, who knows if this is true, because I haven't been there myself, but it is said that if you practice a lot of um, um, ethical behavior and samadhi, that when you die, jhanas, concentration practices, you go to the deva realms, and that people really want to go to the deva realms because there's incredible music, and according to the the Buddhist monks, beautiful woman, and jeweled palaces, and all the most delicious food you you can want. And basically, whatever you can imagine as pleasurable experiences, that's in the Deva realm. And he spent a long time talking about all the different pleasurable experiences, and then. Right at the end, he said, and you, you stay in Deva realms for thousands of years. It's not like you just go for one lifetime or two lifetimes. You go there for a thousand, thousands of years. Because time is different in the Deva realm. So one lifetime here is very different there. So thousands of years here, you, and then... What happens at the end of the thousands of years? You have to come back to the human realm. And uh, I love that story because it really um, communicates the, uh, so beautifully that there actually is no escape. Even, even when you get to the Deva realms, you have to come back. And there's something actually very profound, at least for me, in hearing that there's no escape. In fact, it's been one of the greatest inspirations for me to persevere, is that and I know we're knowing it and I'm kind of saying what's obvious, 
that there is no escape, that basically this is it. I wanted to, um, I wanted to read what um, Eddie Ellis, who was a Black Panther Party member who got framed for a murder and was in prison for 26 years. And this is the interviewer, um, Gray. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer and human rights, act, human rights activist, has written, Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life was not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the soul. Does that quote resonate with you? Ellis. Solzhenitsyn was much more insightful than most people in prison. What I share with him is the feeling that being in prison was a monastic experience. You're isolated from the world. You're completely restricted. You lose your freedom of mobility and choice. But the one invaluable gift that prison grants you is time time to think and reflect, or time to waste. My deepest human insights and my understanding of myself and others were sharpened as a consequence of being locked in a cell. I don't often admit this because most people wouldn't understand it, but I may very well be a better person because of my time behind bars. I don't consciously say, bless you, prison, but prison was a period of divine preparation for me, a blessing in disguise that continues to enhance and enrich my life in ways I can't articulate. And I, and I love that because in a way, before I came to the Dharma, I felt imprisoned in my life. It felt like, oh my God, there's no escape. And because it felt like there was no escape, the only escape that I found was to act out. And there's something about that confronting the reality of either present life or our life inside or out of present and, and coming to that deep, acknowledgement of this is it that becomes the basis of peace. This is how it is, this turning towards how it actually is and acknowledging it. This is how it is. And in that turning and facing, we then begin to see what our choice is and how we relate to what it is we're given. And, um, and, I th and, I think of, and I think of the Buddha's lifetime and how he, he lived in a deva realm and then was confronted with the reality of, of seeing people who were sick or a person who was sick, a person who was dying and um, a practitioner, a spiritual practitioner, and 
in that turning towards those things, he saw, if this is life, what does it mean? It was that turning to how things are. What does it mean? And then he went on these great adventures. First, he practiced jhana, and he went into these incredible concentrated states and realized that no matter how blissful or pleasurable it was, that he always had to come out of jhana. And then he was back to his life. And then he tried starvation and flagellation. And, you know, just like, well, maybe it's not pleasure, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's like just really trying to, in some way, belittle myself and hurt myself that I would find the path. And he realized that as he was close to death, that wasn't it either. And so then he went to sit under the Bodhi tree and he said, it's neither of those. And so now I turn towards myself and my own mind. And the very first thing that happened when he turned towards himself, and this is often what we encounter, especially at the beginning of a retreat, was what was personified as Mara was all the obstacles. So all, so this is of course I think more fable because I don't think all these beautiful women suddenly manifested, but who knows because they say there are devas. So anyway, he, he, all the things that, all the things that were, were um, covering his heart became apparent to him in the same way that when we turn towards ourselves we often find the same thing our anger our constriction our desire our obsession um, our confusion and in facing those things he turned towards the earth and he said I have I have basically a right. I'm greater than these things. I have the power, and I call on the power of the earth as my witness, not to be seduced by these energies and to find my path to open, to open to... Um, what I've been given birth for. That turning towards is mythic and also describes what, um, what we encounter. And in that encountering then, the encountering of our obstacles, in order to come to the great peace, the Buddha outlined a path. And the first step or understanding of the path he called right understanding. And the key part of right understanding is that he said there was such a thing as wisdom and skillfulness and there was such a thing as ignorance. That there actually are these two realities 
There is what is wise and skillful, and there is what is unskillful and ignorant that brings suffering. There are these two things. And then he said, I'm sort of shortening it a little bit, and then he said, there is right intention, which is how we incline our mind to what is skillful and how we disengage from what is ignorant and unskillful. And in a way we could say that is the heart of the path. The dynamic and the mechanism of that is karma. The, the mental mechanism that supports becoming skillful and disengaging from what is unskillful is the law of karma. And that is that every intention, depending on whether it's skillful or unskillful, will manifest. And so whenever we intend consciously towards what is skillful, we are building a universe that is healing and skillful. We are learning how to relate to what is given. And whenever we forget, or whenever the habitual, the habitual obstructions take over, we are being caught in what is unskillful and what is suffering. And that it is so incredibly clear what the Buddha says. And so he says, this is the reality. There is what is wise and there is what isn't wise. There is a, a dynamic in the mind and body that helps us to actually choose and cultivate and build what is wise, and that is the law of intention and karma. And then there is also the refrain from harming through the precepts, through speech, and through livelihood. So that dynamic of cultivating what is skillful is based on refraining from harming. That, that's the ground. And then there's the last part, which is mindfulness, effort, and concentration. And that in order to be able to see what is skillful, we have to be mindful. In order to be mindful, we have to make the effort to bring the mind back to the present moment. In when there is effort and when there is mindfulness, then we have the conditions to focus, to direct the mind to the experience. And it is in those three energies that we can call building a relationship to the moment. When we are both awake, present, and connected to the experience, we have the capacity then to choose how we relate to it. And that's the basic message of empowerment that the Buddha has given.
the the mantra that I have used over and over again and that I say to myself over and over again that that somehow never loses its um, guidance for me is the mantra that what is unskillful is never friendly because how do we know when it's unskillful? It's never friendly. Whenever we have a thought or whenever we relate or say something or do something in a way that isn't friendly and present, it's unskillful. So, just to enunciate a little more clearly, the Buddha, and the Buddha gave a list of energies and, and marked it very clearly. There is aversion, there is anger, there is fear, there is hatred, there is greed, there is obsession, there is envy, there is sloth, torpor, anxiety and doubt. There are those energies in the mind and when they operate and we believe them, we are far from peace and building peace. They are there. We have inherited them because that is the nature of being a human being is that we've inherited them. When there is faith, there is always beautiful qualities associated with there's always beautiful qualities or skillful qualities that follow the buddha said that for any skillful quality to be in the mind there is always faith so that when there is faith or when there is kindness and friendship when there is mindfulness or clarity, when there's pliancy and malleability of the mind, or right understanding and the, the factors of the path, right intention, then there is always the capacity in the building blocks for peace. So he was super clear about that. And then, and then, he also gave us this one other dynamic. Well, hang on, let me just take a moment to. So what the Buddha is saying is that in life the unskillful energies are going to arise. That is the nature of being an unawakened human being. And what's important about that is not to take it as a personal definition that somehow we failed, but that it is part of a universal condition that each one of us will experience these energies. What's important about acknowledging it 
is that it's only when we come into relationship with these energies with the skillful energies that they are healed and transformed. So he's saying that we have this capacity to relate to these energies in ways that heal them or that disengage them from continuing to live inside of us. So Thich Nhat Hanh gives this very beautiful description of what plant are you watering in your greenhouse? Are you watering anger? Are you watering revenge? Are you watering hatred? Yes, we are. We're doing it all the time because until we're aware all the time, the habitual movements of those plants are going to continue to grow. We're, we're going to continue to water them. No big deal, no problem. When we both turn to see it and in the seeing it, call into being the skillful energies. So often when we meditate and we notice that we're angry or that we're bored or that we're frustrated or that we're sad, we feel like somehow we're failing in our practice. We're not. In fact, acknowledging these energies is the very first part of actually healing because unless we see them, we can't turn towards them with caring and allowing. We can't disengage from the thoughts that keep them in place. So seeing them is really important and that's why we name it. That's why we name it, and that, we, and that this practice invites us to keep naming it and to keep seeing it over and over and over again. And you know, so we mentioned that in the question and answer period, how it took the Buddha eons because he was doing that very thing of seeing greed or aversion or judgment or hatred over and over and over and over and over again. And we're like, yes, there. I'm so glad I got to see you again. Yes, there. I'm so glad I got to see you again. You know that, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> I can't believe this. I can't believe that. You know, I, I thought in my mind when um, I came in for lunch today and I thought, you know, there was the the potatoes and the bread and the lovely quinoa salad. And I was like, aren't there any vegetables? I said to Sue, aren't there any vegetables? <laughs> there were, sometimes there aren't, but there was, oh yeah, she said, and she opened the pot of kale. But it's like that, you know, just that habitual reaction. You know, and it's just so great to see. I'm so glad I got to see it. Because when we see it, we have that opportunity to disengage. When it's overwhelming, when there is, I remember on my first going retreat, I think I've, you've heard me say this, that I, I, because I'm Jewish and I grew up with probably the, the epitome of hatred was the concentration camps and the, um, 
the structure of, of anti-Semitism and racism and homophobia in, the, in, in Nazi, the Nazi culture in Germany. And I, I would sit there and I would think, my mind is worse than a Nazi soldier. I, I would say that to myself because all I could see was anger and hatred. It would just be moment after moment after moment after moment. It was just what is in my mind. And if I had not gotten a ride, I would have split the scene, just undoubtedly. But we were in the middle of Mendocino Forest. It was miles and miles and miles away. I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could walk it. And, um, and so I hung in there. But that's, that is at least sometimes what we find, which is something overwhelming. It could be sloth and torpor, or it could be the times of obsession, where we are obsessed and cannot get rid of whatever it is that we're obsessed about. You know, so whatever it is, sometimes it feels all pervasive. And just to say that still doesn't mean that healing is impossible. But rather, sometimes we need a break. And vacations are good. So we take a break, and then we come back. And we take a break, and then we come back. Giving, allowing space for those energies to come up and um, in some way honoring them is the path of healing. And um, I, I think of our friend Rhea and she taught me something that has been incredibly helpful which is part of process work. And she said to me once, you have to take the other side. I was complaining about spirit rock. And she said to me, you have to take the other side. And it was, it was really great because, you know, I was complaining and it was to my friend Rhea and so I was sort of not being as diligent in my, <laughs> uh, being mindful of what was being unskillful, right? And so she said, you have to take the other side. And I was like, I just felt all this resistance. Like, no, absolutely, I cannot take their side. That, that taking the other side is another way of of talking about holding something with friendliness and mindfulness. So if I think of some of the structures of Spirit Rock and the people given their history and their conditioning and that it's mostly, you know, traditional male heterosexually gendered um, and, um, and that was their conditioning. I can totally understand from those conditions why certain policies would come forth. 
and certain communications would come forth. Yes, I can take that sound. When I also can take my own side. So when this is just another way of coming to how do I hold it? How do I hold some of these places? And one is to allow, to take our own side and to allow, honey, of course you feel that unmitigated anger and rage given your history and your conditions and what you've lived through, of course this is how you feel. You feel pissed off in your relationship, of course you do. I totally understand why you would do. Given everything, of course you feel pissed off. No problem. Meeting whatever we have with friendliness is taking that first side first. You're frustrated, You've, you are confused, of course you feel confused. You're sick, you feel frustrated, you don't have a diagnosis, of course you feel frustrated. No problem, it makes so much sense. So taking our side first and then taking the other side. So, non, so peace in this case, so peace. Wow, you've really abandoned me. You're so caught up in, <laughs> you're so caught up in trying to get a diagnosis. You know, you just, you've totally forgotten me. I, I'm feeling so lonely and isolated here in the corner of your life. You know, what about me? You know, I've, I've been working so hard all these years, all these retreats. You know, what? It's like, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just kind of making that up a little bit. But I definitely have gone through that around wanting pleasant experiences and feeling frustrated in some of my practice life of working with so much uh, of the trauma that I've carried and like feeling like, can't I just have a break? Can't I have some pleasant experiences? Like, just give me a pleasant experience. And then I take pleasant experience side. You're always wanting me. God, give me a break. I feel so hassled. You're always after me. Wanting me, wanting me, wanting me. It's like, just relax. It's okay. I'm here. I'm here. It's okay. I, you know, relax and, 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 and take a breath and, and I'm here. So I take both sides. So just as a fun example of how to extricate ourselves from the, the polarization of of um, getting caught in something. And in being caught, really, it's saying that we're not taking the other side. And how can we take the other side? What is it that we need to open to in order to heal that particular situation? <laughs> kind of gone all over the place. Okay.
So then lastly, in this turning towards what is difficult in order to heal it, um, holding, allowing, just to do the full circle means disengaging. This is another way of taking the other side. We have to let go of our storyline in order to take the other storyline. If I have to let go of my irritation with Spirit Rock, it means I have to understand what their side is. So, letting go of our storylines, wherever there's a charge, letting go of the storyline. Wherever there's a charge, letting go of the storyline. So, with that lunch, the storyline I had was, there should be a vegetable with every meal. Well, who says? But that's the storyline. And I was totally identified with it in that moment. So letting go of the storyline. Turning towards what is difficult. When we feel overwhelmed and we take a break, and, and you all have been supported to go for walks and to um, hang out in nature, to... to um, turn your mind to what is joyful. There's one, there's one traditional practice just to remind ourselves again, and that is to turn towards our wish to heal. Just to continually turn towards our wish to heal, to see it, to see the goodness in wanting to heal, to see the goodness in wanting to turn towards what is difficult. Seeing the caring that we have that brought us here this evening. So whenever we feel like our minds are failing or exhausted, to turn towards, to turn towards it and to see if you can feel it in your body or sense it as an atmosphere. I want to awaken. I want to heal, or just, I want to be present in this moment and I can't, and see the beauty of that energy and how it's living inside of you, and see if you can rest there. It's an incredible refuge. And then the mind gets taken again, and then turn again. I lost it, but I want to come back and see the wanting how beautiful it is, because it's inspired by wisdom. See if you can feel just that kind of stretch in the heart as you turn to that place. It's, it is the, that wish we have is one of the greatest resources and refuges that we have. And that it lives, it isn't just a thought, it lives in the body as an energy and the mind can turn towards it and rest there and so it becomes this wonderful refuge and we just keep going back and back again. So I've given, you know, many of you have heard the, um, the practice of cultivating joy and so that's very similar, the practice of cultivating joy is to reflect on our generosity and to reflect on the places where we haven't harmed 
that we haven't stolen, that we haven't killed, that we haven't um, taken someone with a bludgeon and beaten them up. That's the traditional, that's another traditional refuge to turn towards where we have been ethical and held the precepts or where we've been generous. Feel free in your meditation practice when, again, when you are, when you feel like you're losing it, feel free to turn towards that contemplation. And it can just be for a moment or it can be for longer, especially when you feel like you're not able to hold through with whatever it is that is arising for you. That, that, those are the technologies for what the Buddha describes as the highest peace and what it means to cultivate and to grow the highest peace. It is this, um, this practice of turning towards what is difficult, using the resources that we have to see the unskillfulness of it, to disengage from it, and then to cultivate the beautiful qualities and the strength that allows us to open and hold what is difficult and also to transform it. Okay, so then let me end with this poem that um, is a lovely poem by William Stafford. So that's said, does that make sense? Yeah? What I've said, 